and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. This week, I am continuing my conversation with Ed Deegan of Gizzard Recording. We're digging into his workflow a little bit more and his sort of general structure of working with bands and the mentality of working with uh, different bands. So the first episode was a lot of his history and the way that he's come about to having his studio. And this one is about more of the practicalities of uh, recording to analog at the studio. Um, so I really do hope you enjoy this. Uh, don't forget that if you would like to listen to some of the examples that we talk about, specifically at the end of this episode, you can do that by visiting the Spotify playlist. And I know Spotify is the devil, but we all use it. Okay, well, maybe not all of us use it, but it's still very useful. And I still buy albums. I've bought the albums that we've discussed in this podcast, and they are en route. Uh, they will be here by the time you're listening to this. Um, so, yes, I do still support music, but Spotify is convenient as much as I dislike it. Um, and anyway, that's a whole different topic. What are you doing, Joe? So, yeah, do go and visit the Spotify playlist. And if you don't use Spotify, just maybe use it as an index so that you can go and check out some of the music that uh, we talk about on this. Um, but so we'll just dive straight in. Here we go. Uh, part two of my conversation with Ed Deegan. Do you record, um, do you, are you backing up to computer as you go? What's um, how, what's your sort of workflow um, kind of working um, with taping with, with sort of modern pressures as well? Sure. Well, I never back up in terms of because I'm going to lose it or, or erase something. I just, if I, I mean, touch wood and I start have it, I'm getting older now, so maybe I should start backing up. But um, I've kind of, I have obviously made those mistakes and then, um, and done that back in the day, you know, and when you do erase something that you really shouldn't have erased, <laughs> you kind of never forget that, that oh, feeling. Such so, a horrible feeling. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of learned the lesson, but, um, and so I'd never back up in terms of, for that reason, for, yeah. for the thing, but what I do do now, because two inch tape is just so expensive now. And, um, I think it's just over 300 quid a roll. Yeah, so it's just like, you know, for a band who want to come in and record like an EP or something, it's just not practical, yeah. you know, to charge that. So I've got so much tape. I just do pretty much do them a deal. I, I charge them a kind of me. I call it a kind of bundle. I charge them X amount for the, to use the two inch tape and, they, we mix down to core inch, which they keep or they can store here. And I kind of just do a rental bunt sort of price and all that tape. And the rental also includes a digital transfer for like all the stems and everything. Yeah. So those two inch tapes are backed up. And even if they don't request that or they don't want me to bother backing it up or anything, I, I do anyway. So I've got like a hard disk that it runs out eventually, like from the last six years of multi-tracks that have just been i just literally just plug all 16 tracks into the into the interface and roll it you know it's all set up and it's a massive backup process of the whole role and they'll just label it you know obviously save it under whatever category it is and then and that's it and those tapes then get reused x amount of times until they you know until they you know that's that really so that's kind of in terms of backing up and, and dealing with costs and then using the tape itself that's how we how i sort of tackle that so are you I mean, your the computer's not involved in the process at all so you're you're recording straight to the tape 
and you don't have um, you know when a, when an artist comes in are they are they seeing it on pro tools or anything or is it just oh, no, all the, audible it's all audible. we've got a kind of it's quite a nice thing i put in where the computer screen is on a kind of arm Mm. and the arm sort of drifts down the back of the desk so it's completely out of view <laughs> so you don't and the computer you can't even see it. it's in the corner somewhere so all that stuff keyboards mouse every lot just goes away fantastic and the whole process just runs without any kind of visual which i think is really annoying like we're talking about musicians looking at each other i think they should be looking at each other not the screen <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get shot of that completely and um and then you know at the end of the day you know once it's mixed down to a quarter inch, then of course it comes out because you know they want to have a listen. Hmm. And we we put it onto you know file wav files and everything, and then you know take it away. But if it's if there's a budget in the project, the quarter inch tapes will then go off to Noel Somerville, who's down in Peckham, and he will then master it straight from the quarter inch to the to the lacquer, you know, which is really nice to be able Fantastic. to do that. Yeah. So obviously it's a bit of a budget. You have to have a bit of a budget for that, but. Or um, if that's the budget isn't there for Noel to do it, I just master it here, you know, digitally, yeah. you know, for the guys, and then you know goes off from there. And the tapes around, if that, um, you know, option ever becomes available, you know, so it's it's nice. So, so yeah, it's nice not to have the screen there. It's awful having that. It's refreshing to hear about it because it's, um, you know, even if uh, a lot of studios are still working uh, to tape, but it's still all running through a computer essentially. And I like the yeah. idea that it's not at all and you can't see any visual representation of what you're doing. It's all just reliant on, on your ears listening to what you, what you've got there. Yeah, it does. I think it's really important. And, and, those, and those facilities aren't, they're not around. You can't, you know, do X amount of takes and, and, you know, pick the best bits and put them together. You have to kind of run in that kind of tape um, fashion. Mm. And um, I really do think it helps people's decision making and not all the time obviously if people have found us and they want to come and, and try this way of recording it's usually because they don't want any of those facilities anyway that yeah. digital can offer and they're, they're kind of tired of that and they want to be able to realize things without all that kind of carry on and um i think coming here and you know because we can run it and we no problem whizzing the tape back dropping in you know it will move fast yeah um it's really refreshing for them to just have this hands-on physical you know approach to the the process and it's really responsive and you work as a team's constantly questions i'm constantly asking them you know how many overdubs what are we thinking on here oh you know and you're, it's a constant conversation yeah the pro the project is as of course in the digital i don't think that conversation drops a little bit because you can constantly just keep stuff and we'll worry about it later oh yeah we'll fix that we'll see what happens later on you know or you know we'll see how we go nothing's ever can resolved you know, throughout the process. And I, I think, I'm not saying that's worse or, or better really, but for me personally, I, I just like things to, to be, um, I like to know where I'm going. You know? It's making decisions, <laughs> you know? isn't it? And yeah. uh, it's something I come across in, in what I do as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't work all, all analog in the way that you do, but I like to, to commit to, you know, once a take is is working, like a usable take, you go, great, we'll, we're we're going with that now, and um, you build everything else on top of it. Yeah, um, there's sure. nothing worse I I find than trawling through take after take, tr- choosing the best, <laughs> like yeah, it, going back in again and oh, then coming out again. Yeah, then, oh no, let's go back over. It's like really annoying. You know, you kind of 
your focus drift. You, you, I don't know. You find yourself sort of floating around in in sort of limbo. Yeah, that's a, a but, really good way of putting it. <laughs> um, I think. I think. Uh, who was it? Um, oh God, his name's gone from my memory now. Maybe it'll come back in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he sort of looked at the two pro, um, processes of like analog being a kind of um, you know it's like a straight line. You know where you sort of move along from stage to stage you know going through each process yeah and digital being something that kind of goes up and down you know it, it doesn't true, really yeah. and back and forward it doesn't follow this kind of straight line and then um, for me <laughs> maybe i don't know i just find it very difficult to go up and down you know i i, I even i just i just i'd like to sort of like this is the backing track stage this is where we're doing the backing tracks this is we're doing the live stuff now we're into the overdub stage where we're doing the overdubs and everything and then now we're moving into the mixed down stage mm. and then um, I find it hard. I mean, I, I can move. Obviously, we can move back and forward, but with tape, it's a bit harder. And I find those parameters useful, you know. I think yeah. so. I, but I totally understand that people would find them annoying, you know, in, in some respects. Well, you, you have know. to make a, a conscious decision to go backwards as opposed to a couple of clicks on a mouse. Exactly. And, you you know. got it, yeah. Yeah, the tape's like, oh, Christ, now I have, to set the, I have to figure out what the setting was on the desk when we were doing that vocal. Mm. We have to go back now and drop in on them, you know, third line, second verse or something. Yeah, it makes and you really like, quite, like, you have to go, yeah. does it matter that much? And if Exactly. It, you know, if it does, then it's worth it. And if it doesn't, then you're living with it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And you really have to ask yourself those questions because you might. it will sound a bit different when you go, and obviously, when on, on a DAW, you can just play around with that little segment and just match it up. It's a lot easier to kind of you know tweak that in there yeah um, it's a lot more tricky sometimes especially if you resign to yourself that it's done that that's done and dusted and you moved forward it's mentally it's like oh god really do you think it takes a certain level of confidence from from a sort of band's perspective um in order to to re- record that way do you find that the bands that you're working with have to have confidence in the the songs that they've they've come along with um I uh, how, how, how do you mean sort of like um, well, I guess performance wise and in terms of the arrangement and um so that they obviously there's there's um there's still room for creativity within the recording process sure. but um you know it's not like uh you you've got somebody playing take after take in order to get it right there's they it takes somebody needs to have confidence a lot of self confidence within themselves to go you know that's that sounds great, and yes, okay, it's not um, it's not as perfect as it might be if I did. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like it takes a certain level of, of confidence within yourself to kind of let yourself be resigned to to sort of because uh, often there's, there's 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 special moments come out of errors, don't they, and mistakes. And, yeah, um, and things being imperfect, which is something we talk about, you know, is is a nice thing. But yeah. in order to allow something to be imperfect, you've got to have enough confidence in in what you you're yeah, creating. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I mean, I think with bands, I mean, they do. I think it's how they sort of depends how experienced they are and where their threshold is and how how much recording and how what they're expecting from what they've done. I mean, obviously, the more experienced musicians will kind of know this and yeah. they'll come in and they'll know what you what you've just basically said. You know about this. You, you get a take and it's like ninety eight percent there. Should I tamper? You know, should I just? Is that the best it gets? Mm. And and, when, and with those kind of musicians, what I'll say to them is, well, I think that I think you've got it. You know, I think you've really got it there. But let's just do it. That's the time I use the facilities, the limited facilities I have, and I'll say, well, let's just do another track. 
you know, stick the vocal in return regards to vocal. I guess it could be in regards to anything. Yeah. But um, do another vocal on another track. And if it's better, and I, I sort of view it as like climbing a mountain. You know, mm-hmm. you're climbing a mountain. You're slowly getting better each time. And, you know, you get to that point where you don't want to lose what you've just done because it might be the best it, it's going to be. Yeah. And at that point, I'll say, let's do it on another track or let's do another take. But I, I normally try and hold off. And I always say, no, just do it again. <laughs> just, <laughs> and try and just say, because you kind of know. I, and then they say, well, you mean, might not get it better. And I go, well, you're not going to be happy with that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> because it's no good. You know, it's just not good, is it? I'm not normally as, as kind of brutal as that. But <laughs> you can kind of, um, you can sort of find a way of just encouraging them. Because they know, you'll find they know. And it's kind of like deep down thing. They just know. You know that then they, it isn't as good, but you know mentally they just want it to be done. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as you say it's done, then it's it's, it's over. Then you've moved on to another tune. You know the, the session moves on to something else, and it's unlikely it will be done. And if it is, does have to get done again. It's a real palaver. Yeah. You know to get it done. So I really do try and 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 sort of push to the very limit of what the band can do to get that really good take. And then sort of turn it over and say, let's do another one. And sometimes because they're relaxed, it's better. Or yeah. sometimes it's not and they just can't do it any better. And it's like, oh, and then that gives them that, going back to what you said, the confidence, that gives them that confidence then to say, yes, yes, we cracked it. You know, that's the best we could do. And, and we've done that. Yeah, you know, we have actually done that. And I think sometimes having those limitations, is, it's in that in that sort of, sort of um, timeline I've just sort of spelled out there, in that scenario, it was good not having the digital, you know, because mm-hmm. the, the, they did climb that mountain and, you know, they were able to climb it and get there. But if you're dealing with a band that isn't that experienced and um, really is at a kind of um, beginning level, you know, where everything is a little bit wonky and, yeah. and um, you know, stuff like that, you could look at it like, well, that's the best you can do today at this point. And it's an honest, you know, playback of what you are. Yeah. Or if we were in a, doing on a digital session, you'd just obviously do a bit of time correct, slice it all up <laughs> and stuff. But that is that good? You know, is that good to do that to a young band? And then, then they think they're great and they go off and, 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 and you know, go off with that polished thing. Yeah. Or would it be better to say, look, guys, you know, we need, you know, I know it's expensive why I guess of doing it, but I've had bands come in where they have experienced that like not negative but mm, you know yeah yeah I know exactly <laughs> oh shit yeah. you know it's not you know, I thought we were going to sound like the Beatles and we don't you know <laughs> um, but yeah, they learn and they come back six months later and it's so much better yeah. you know because of that process so I don't know who it's difficult to know that's a difficult one to you know where what, what wins out there you know it's um, but I guess in these days you don't necessarily have to climb that mountain you can go <laughs> it depends what your priorities are <laughs> well yeah i think um, um, the challenge it's, it's um it's so interesting i've not really ever thought about it from that perspective but the, the i guess the um the challenge is in in the in the learning and and yeah we don't want to we're so used to learning things quite quickly nowadays um, you know, if you want to learn how to fix your washing machine, you just you quick quick video on YouTube, and you know, it's amazing, you, isn't it? you know, what, <laughs> you know, somebody's looking at your exact washing machine, and you can just just copy them. Um, yeah. And uh, whereas, you know, I guess I know it's such a crude example, but you know, sort of back in the in sixties days, you you just 
take your washing machine apart yourself and, and have a bash <laughs> and, you'd, yeah. and you'd probably get it wrong and you'd learn it that way you uh, would you yeah. would and it's the same, exactly the same thing and i think that um there's definitely merit in uh in that in that sort of little bit of moment of disappointment i mean I'm, i think the same for everybody that the, the moments you learn the most are the, the the times when you've made made a mistake or you've thought something was good when it really wasn't or yeah um, you know they are the best learning experiences it is you you don't really you don't get anything out of something you haven't worked for do you you know you don't feel that satisfaction because yes you know we worked hard and we got it um when it's just laid there for you you kind of take it for granted don't you it's obviously it's fun but you never really feel that real such a great feeling i think those, those sort of sense of sense of achievements all those little things absolutely you can put it into all sorts of aspects of your life but they're they're, they're the best things <laughs> i agree <laughs> you know so in terms of recording a band is that timeline that you sort of spelled out your Obviously, each situation is different, but are you generally looking at um, starting with the backing track and then overdubs? And or how, what, what's your approach in terms of Usually, structure? It's normally like that. I mean, it's normally the bands come in, and, and um, you know, I normally know. I like to know exactly what's coming in. I hate that when bands come in, you know, you don't know how many guitarists there are or what's happening, and, and you sit there for hours plugging things in <laughs> while they sit around. I hate that. So I always like to know exactly what backline is coming. If they're using our backline, you know, what what's happening, and I get everything, you know, pretty much as as plugged in and tested as I can. So. Um, they come in and start. But yeah, it's usually backing tracks first and it's usually a live element. Not always. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, you know, they'll be doing stuff where, well, we'll just do a click track and a guide acoustic guitar and vocals or something. Yeah. Or something along those lines. And then, you know, the drummer will play to that and then the bass will go on and then so and so and so, which is fine. It's a different, different sound. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's much more controlled sound. And I'm, I'm quite happy with that. I, I really have. Whatever's best for the, the project, you know. Of course. But we do do an awful lot of um, live stuff where um, it is, you know, sometimes not even where to click at all, just just straight live. Or if someone does want to click, I'll give the drummer the click. And um, I find that sometimes people really, all the musicians want to have clicks. I don't understand that. It drives me nuts because (laughs) they're all going to have a different relationship with the click. (laughs) So just take the click away and it helps things out of time, you know, because everyone will play slightly different on the click depending on their um, musicality. Yeah. So um, that can be sticky sometimes, but as long as I can get the drummer to play to the click, and then the rest of the guys play to the drummer, yeah. then we're, we're home, you know. Um, so those are they're the, the kind of usual environment. Sometimes guide vocals, sometimes not guide vocal. Um, it happens like that. With regards to separation, you know, sometimes not everyone's in the one room. We have a the the control room's fairly roomy, so I can sort of have a vocalist or a double bass player in here. And I'll wear headphones. Obviously, the bassist or whoever's in here will wear headphones. And yeah. we've got a small kind of, not really a vocal booth, as it were. It's like a smallish room <laughs> that we can isolate that's got a big kind of rectangular pane of glass in the door so they can see straight into, you know, the, the main library. Yeah. Oh, cool. So we quite often have singers out there or, or violinists or stuff that's, going to be you know annihilated by the drums <laughs> <laughs> we get blamed for everything there. drummers <laughs> <laughs> so that, that or sometimes i put the drums out there which is quite nice you yeah. know and then but um yeah so and it, well that was kind of a you know mix and match it i mean the drum kit moves around between pretty much two places in the room now three places including the small room yeah so 
that's the, the everyone you know it's always in a sort of state of flux really you know it just, for a three-piece guitar band it's always the same yeah but if there's other elements like keyboards or other instruments sax saxophones depends how big this brass section is <clears throat> that moves things around again and the piano of course you know they have to get that away from the drums so mm. you know there's all sorts of um you know ways around it yeah. you know Another thing that I've found quite useful that I use sometimes, I've got like speed, there's an attic we have here, fortunately okay. enough to have an attic. So I have two, uh, I have a bass cab, not the amp itself, just the cabinet, the speaker, mm-hmm. at one end of the attic, and I have a guitar cab, 2 by 12 in the other end of the attic. So I can get the sounds on the amps without any screens or anything, just set up like a rehearsal, literally a back line, drums, yeah. bass amp, guitar amp, either side of the drums. And when they're happy with their sounds, I take the output of the amps to the speakers in the attic. So it's complete isolation. Oh, cool. So them, so that's quite good because they've had the experience of the amp. I think that's sometimes disorientating, going back to the sort of 80s approach where, you, you know, quite often the guitar amp would be like in another room somewhere, <laughs> you know, like off like down a corridor. It's a strange setup. So I feel I played with the amps, played like an AC30 or something yeah. and heard the tone, got got that manual approach and that physicality with the amp and got it how they wanted. The drums, drum, everyone's played with that back line. Then this is only if we want that kind of isolation, which, to be honest, isn't very often. Mm-hmm. But um, then we can just bust out the amp straight up to the cabs, and it's like complete isolation. It's quite good fun. Yeah, that's really <laughs> you just cool. get, and you can do like, but sometimes with the drums, if you want like more of a Steve Albini type, you know, really get the mics off the kit, and um, that can be quite fun. But of course, the guitar, everything's going on at the same time. Everything's kind of real because the amps you know are going and they've got manual settings right in front of them they can go to their amps they can mm-hmm. turn the gain up they can turn the gain down you know it's quite it doesn't seem to take the edge off too much of that everything in the room vibe you know it's still very real you yeah. know in how they're doing it so that's sometimes i do that it's quite a useful um, approach cool. do you have a a general uh, sort of default mic uh or sort of mic setup and chain. I mean, again, obviously it changes per per session. But um, are you are you sort of compressing things on the way in? Uh, and do you have sort of default mics that you're using? And what sort of that, what's your level of uh, commitment? And what sort of chains are you using on the way in? Sure. Well, the drums. I pretty much nearly always use for the Glyn Johns four mic sort of thing or something based around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I start with most of the time, it's just two Calrec 600 mics that I have pretty much on the, uh, as the kind of overheads, if you like, one sort of dangling about a foot off the tom-tom, red yeah. tom, and one sort of somewhere around near the floor tom. And um, I make, you know, move them around depending on how loud this, this, the drummer is on the cymbals and stuff. Yeah. And um, then the snare mic and a bass drum mic, and the bass drum is usually like two-headed bass drum. There's no hole. So the, the kick mic goes, you know, at the front. And what I sometimes do, if someone's quite... The crash cymbal on... If you're, you know, right-handed drummer, if the crash cymbal on the drummer's left mm-hmm. is, um, you know, annoyingly loud or it's just a bit irritating, I, I switch that mic to a figure of eight mic, okay. you know, yeah. either a, a four and four or... I mean, I used to use a 4038 like a ribbon, but I don't know. I don't. I know it's a it's a it's a cool sound, you know, that over the kit, but I've, I've never really got on that well with it. So I would probably use a, a 414 on figure of eight because the side rejection on figure of eight is great. Yeah. So by just placing it kind of on the same line as the crash symbol, but over the tom, 
it kind of cuts it down quite cool, quite yeah. dramatically. So that's quite good. And occasionally, if we're doing something with like a more of a more of a detailed hi hat, I will stick a hi hat mic in, but underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it's pointing away from the drums. So I'm not getting as, as minimum as drums on that mic as I as I obviously reverse the phase and, and put it underneath. Yeah. And um, what I do find sometimes useful in amongst all that. Um, to just, I've got like a room mic. Literally, just going back to using cheap gear, I've got like a PZM, you know, just oh, a, yeah. you know, one of those realistic things that's just like stuck to the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's the way it's there. And I find that just to open things out a bit, if I've got a free track, I'll just shove that on a free track. And if I want more of a wash of cymbals at the end of the day in the mix, I might just bring that in a bit, you know, just to, you know, or sometimes if I want more of a sonics, like a really crunchy thing, I might just use that. Yeah. He's quite near the drums, and I just have that as mostly the drum <laughs> sound, but with like maybe sneaking a bit of kick and snare along with. Um, so I do play around a lot, but that's my basic. The Glenn Johns thing is normally what I've found after experimenting so many, much time. It's the quickest to get a good sound on. That's that's really why I probably use it because normally you, you want people want things you know done quite fast. Yeah. So I will, I you know, I will have that set up as a starting point always. And then um, I'll set that up. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, I'll, I'll figure it out, you mm-hmm. know, change things around. I would and, guess um, regard- that often it, it I, I can't imagine many situations in which it wouldn't work. Yeah. I guess it's probably, it works nine times out of 10. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you can't go wrong with it really. And the room's nice. So the symbols aren't overly loud in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's balanced. You know, if the drum is balanced, it will sound good. Yeah. You know, so it's it's, and the drums always tune nicely, so it's a winner. Yeah. Um, I do have what well, I do have though is a more you know on the bass drum, I do have a mic permanently inside it, mm-hmm. going against the kind of sixties tradition. Yeah. And it's right up against the beta on the on the inside, mm-hmm. and if we do want any kind of you know more you know kind of a modern approach, sometimes I, I gate that mic and um you know, compress it heavily yeah, and just sneak that mic into the equation ever so slightly. And I find it is quite useful on the heavy rock stuff, mm-hmm. you know, where they just want a little bit more attack, you know, and it just, it just provides that without, you know, but you've got to be very careful with it. It can turn horrendous, but um, that's a useful trick. Yeah. I find, you know, occasionally. Um, uh, bass amp is always mic'd, very rarely DI it. And, that's um, interesting. That's uh, yeah. not often see bass amps mics. It seems to be default to, to DI basses. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I know what you're saying. But I, I find I did used to. I experimented with DIing and DIing from the back of the amp and, and all that stuff. And I just found I always preferred. Again, you know, it's, it's can be a bit foggy at times. The sound in comparison, obviously, it is compared to a DI. It's so like tangy, you know. Yeah. But um, I just find it, it it sounds better in the mix. That that mic, if it's a good amp, you know, it's a good setup, it yeah. just sounds really good. And I, I sort of put up with the negatives of it just for that, because of the, what it does in the mix. It yeah. just always sits lovely. And guitars, you usually 421, you know, Sennheiser mics. So I mm. usually use those on the guitar cabs most of the time. Um, and um, and that's, that's kind of a start off kind of setup, you know. Yeah. For stuff. Um, I'm, I wanted to ask you about your oil drum reverb. I've oh, never, yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, I've never seen one before. Just <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I can't. I think I read it on your website, and I just thought that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, that's that's I got because I'm a big fan of like the Radiophonic Workshop and all that stuff. I 
I could quite happily splice tape loops and mess around with that all day on my own. Yeah. You know, I'm quite happy for quite happily doing that for years. But um I was reading an interview where um or an article on Daphne Oram, you know, she was a massive influence really in, yeah. in terms of what she was doing. And um I just I was reading through the guy was talking about visiting her studio in Kent and you know how you know it was basically her house really, but what she had set up there. And he, he just said in his passing you know, um, commentary he said, "Oh, and she had this oil drum in the garden that she used for reverb, and it stuck with me." I was like, oh, "Oil drum in the garden that used for reverb? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how did she? How did she do that?" And then, as I looked into, it, I thought, "What well, cool, What she would have done is just shoved the mic inside it, like an Omni mic, yeah. and got a little speaker on the top on the big hole, and just literally plumbed in sounds like a chamber." You know, so I I got myself on an eBay for ten or something, yeah. and um, just was really really quite amazed with how much fun this what this sound was, you know. And um, it's become something we've used. It's not obviously it's not something you can use every day, <laughs> but um, I think that was our only reverb. We'd be in trouble, you know. <clears throat> but um, it's really great, like for a sort of tangy metallic quality, especially on vocals for a weird vocal or um, you know. Or you know, on the drums, on the snare drum, it's quite funny. You know, it's a doing. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like it's in a, it's in, a it's in an oil drum. Yeah. And but for Daphne's stuff, I mean, she was using oscillators all the time, and you can I can really see why she used it because, you know, you know, using a, a sine wave oscillator, it's just like there's no harmonic distortion or anything harmonic in that sound. Yeah. But as soon as you stick it into the oil drum, you know, the, the signal into the oil drum, all that sort of sharp metallic you know, waves and the really tangy kind of, you know, you know, the sort of frequencies it, it creates, it sounds incredible. So it's when I'm doing anything like that or anything otherworldly, you know, in terms of what, how I want it to sound, even like an acoustic guitar sometimes mm. or even oscillators myself, it's really handy. You know, it's just reverb, but it's not reverb, if that yeah. makes sense. It's, it's, it's a, I, I kind of, I, I completely... I completely hear what you're describing. It's almost like it sort of adds a, it puts it in a space that is. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like a spindly kind of quality that is just, oh, it's, what's that? You know, it's, it's really interesting, catches the ear. Amazing. And it's, it's just useful to have around. And it's a nice story. And, you know, it's great to have them. Um, a bit of that going on, you know. Definitely, I'm gonna to have to get one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's worth you'll have fun with it. It's, it's so cheap as well. Just get an old speaker out of something, and and then just so I've got quite a it's hanging on a wall in, in, in our hallways. You come up the stairs, so yeah. it's kind of like sort of um horizontal. So to get the mic in, I've got this like stick, <laughs> I can have to stand on a ladder and I have to kind of coax the mic to the bottom of the drum. And then there's a speaker that kind of lives on the front of it that just pumps the sound in. But yeah. it's, um, it's great fun. Really good fun. Oh, really cool. Um, I, I was looking through some of the, the sort of um, things that you, you've put on the website as, uh, as sort of examples of, um, of sound. And I've been listening loads to it. Uh, Holly Golightly and oh, or Golightly, yeah. and I think she's incredible. The sounds on those records, are, uh, I mean, particularly the the Get Along, which is the track that you put on the website. But the whole that whole album, um, if I'm honest, it sounds exactly what I would have hoped a record at your studio sounds like. It just, oh, uh, yeah, I love it. You can hear everything that you've talked about. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I mean, I just wondered is. Uh, you know, maybe not necessarily that record, but is is that in terms of things that you're kind of proud of, or or uh, kind of sum up your 
attitude towards creating is a would that be a good example and what other examples have you got um yeah definitely definitely for, for that really sums up that that kind of area of um you know for, you know on regards to like recording live and yeah. uh, getting a band to sound good like they do that you know as you know just a lively interesting sound to listen to that almost feels like you're with the band when you're listening to it and the yes. guitars sound you know like they're in front of you you know but you know tasty but we're not in good taste yes. you know like hi-fi without being unpleasant mm. and, and bad and untasteful you know it's like that that really does sum it up especially that tune i think that's a really nice tune so there's a really good vocal on that and it just gets you you know it's um the drums are lovely you know the way they sort of ebb and flow they um, really do ebb yeah. and flow that's something you don't often hear um yeah with drums and it's not a i was a I was kind of weighing up just then as you were speaking whether or not to bring it up because it feels like it's a negative thing. Where, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to. I didn't want it to come across as a criticism because it isn't. Oh, it sure. just sounds like a. It sounds. It sounds vibey. I mean, like it does doesn't it? And yeah. that is Bruce. I mean, Bruce the way he plays. He always plays off the vocal, <sighs> and um, he will always respond to everything the vocal does. So in in that respect, it was a guide vocal, but however Holly sung it, he would have responded to that more than he would have responded to anything else in the room. So we, and then of course we respond to him. Yeah. So um, it, it just, it's just, it's something that he has in his, 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 his locker that he, it's rare, you know, and it, it always sounds really cool. I don't know how he gets away with it, <laughs> <laughs> but he does, you know, it's, it's good that you notice it and, and take it on like as a, as a positive thing, because it, it is really on that, on that, on that session. It really, he really does a lot of it. And it's good. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> You know. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I talk about it. Uh, I've talked about it a lot. But the um, the sort of as a drummer, I'm pre-programmed to want everything to be perfectly in time. Yeah. And yeah. even when I hear something that I've done that isn't in time, um, it's I, I kind of want to fix it because I'm more concerned about what other people are going to think about it than yeah um, than what I think I about that. it because I, do I don't care as, well. as much. Yeah. You know, I think if. You know, if we're, there's one particular record that I played on uh, where we did it all live through, um, it's this, the, the, I have a, a band called The Hootenanny, we have this project, and there's one fill in it that I do that is, I would describe it as like a Bruce-like fill, in the, in, if, if that's what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a little bit wonky, but, and I, I had to really let myself live with it <laughs> um, and sort of accept that that's how it was. But now I've, I yeah. love it. I think it works quite well. And it's because uh, sometimes in a bit of time, you, you kind of grow to like it, don't you? At the time, yeah. I know what you mean. You're so critical. You're wanting to stamp these things out all the time. And um, that's one thing about the, going back to the tape. That sometimes it's, it's, it's much more you're much more likely to leave it in on mm. a tape machine than you might do on a DAW. As you know, you know, you just get the mouse out and away you go. Yeah. But um, it's um, it's, it's you know, having a time limit sometimes keeps these things in as well. And moving quickly, you kind of forget about them. Because, well, we've got to move on now. And, <laughs> and you kind of, they stay there. And you think, oh, yeah, actually, I'm glad it does. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's remains, you know. Mm. It's, um, it's good. But, yeah, that record sounds amazing. And the other the other reference you've got is the Modern Nature record, which, again, yes. it's got a... I, they don't sound similar at all, but there's a definitely a similar... I'm, I mean, I'm coming from particularly a drummer's perspective. The drums have got sure. that crispiness about them and the yes. that sort of thwack that tape gives the drums. They, yes. It's just really satisfying, sort of, um, like a, the, the 
to, you know the the initial sort of hit of the drum is really thumpy and leathery and lovely. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that's there, there, that's a good. That's like that. I guess the more that's the sort of two sides to what we do. I guess you've got the, the Holly stuff, you know, and modern nature is a bit more experimental and there's, there's more aspects. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily have been done completely live. Having said that, that session was probably done guitar. Actually, that's that session was done live. What am I talking about? But um, again, so they were recorded exactly the same way. Um, the same kit, in fact. Oh, uh, no, yeah, because we have the studio kit, the premier kit, which is always used. It's unlikely. It's, it's, it's unusual for it not to be used. Mm. And um, unless someone's got a round badge Gretsch that they particularly <laughs> want to bring in or something, you know, yeah. it will always be used. And the cymbals and everything. So it's exactly the same kit, just different drummer. Um, so... The, yeah, the modern nature stuff again. It's a slightly different, you know. I, again, there's a few tape loops on that, that you know, things like that on that album. So that brings out the, that side of of the studio, you know, more mm -hmm. than the organic kind of playing live stuff, which is really nice to have the two kind of marrying up. You know, I think it seems to be um, a trend for that kind of tapey drums and bass feel. Um, with a kind of with a more uh, sonically experimental sort of over the top which yeah. modern nature has and that a lot of the you know a lot of things that are happening nowadays it seems to be that way which you know as a drummer I, I particularly like because I think the um that sort of sound on drums is is amazing I, I'm really into yeah it. oh good no definitely so yeah we do that's uh, that, those examples you know and there's, I think there's another example up there, you know, singer-songwriter that we worked with, Joe's stuff. Mm. Her stuff is like going down a slightly more sort of Kate Bush kind of avenue. Yes, that, yeah. All the, all the backing track on that, I mean, there's piano and, and vocals recorded all live. And um, all the layerings, all the, the more sonic experimental sounds you hear, that's all, none of those are actual instruments. They're all tape loops. And, um, oh, cool. And um, even though it might sound quite contemporary, this is another twist that... Things that really interests me is, you know, yeah, nothing, none of those are actually instruments. They're all found sounds, like, you know, lampshades being knocked with a contact mic you know, <laughs> attached to it. And then the drums are built up from, I mean, I, I like, you know, it, things around like household things as opposed to drums. So, it, it, but it sounds like it might possibly be an 808 drum machine. Oh, it <laughs> does, times, yeah, but, it does, yeah. But it's not, none of it is. So, it's, um, it's another thing that I really, I really like doing. You know, I, I could, you know the radiophonic workshop influence there. I mean, I really enjoy doing stuff like that. You know, so again, it's all that, that, those sort of three examples pretty much sort of sum up, you know, the extremes <laughs> of, <laughs> of um, you know the tape thing. You know, I guess for me anyway, my 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 um, yeah, you know, take on it all. Is it more challenging but, to get those more if you call you know radiophonic workshop type sounds, if you want to call it that? Is it more challenging to get them than to say get the uh, the Holly Golightly stuff, where perhaps it's just a case of setting the band up and getting a solid sound? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, you need far more time to sort of sit back and, and conjure all that stuff up. The live thing, obviously, it's you've got the musicians to help you or anyway, and the parts are written, so you know everyone can come in and play them. So yeah, it's it's um, you know it's a far more, and it's what we do more of, yeah. just purely for that reason, because you know you can't have a band coming in and saying, oh, can you create that radiophonic workshop thing? And it takes hours. We only would have got like you know sort of eight bars or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like so um, you know it's that that's a sort of specialist thing that 
it has to happen sort of almost like this when, when i'm something i'm when i'm incredibly involved in you know the production side of something yes yeah. my, my influence depending on how much i'm involved in the project will depend mm-hmm. on how much you know of that sort of stuff finds its way into the project or how i mean sometimes it's not necessary like holy stuff it wouldn't work it would be a bad idea you know mm. so it's not necessary it's like a different vibe but in on that holy stuff i get to play guitar so it's great <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like a different um you know way in you know so it's um it's all you know it, there's a time and a place for everything i guess yeah well i hope that you <laughs> that's, know, the, that's the key i guess that's time it. and place for everything i'll link to uh, to those those tracks and I, I um I hope people go and listen to them because what I've enjoyed is listening to them this week and then chatting to you about them and hearing I've almost done it in reverse to what people might do if they're listening to this but I've all I like to hear your approach and then relate it to a sound because it's so oh, easy great. to talk about these things and then and you kind of pick you build up a mental picture of of what happens when I you know when sure. you hear someone talking but to actually hear the sounds that you're talking about it makes a lot more sense. Um, and it sort of oh, brings good. it into reality. So yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for asking us to do this. I've I've got a lot out of it. It's nice to have a chance to rant away. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolute you know. pleasure. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. It's uh, it's amazing. No worries. No worries at any time. Fantastic. There we have it. The entirety of my conversation with Ed Deegan of Gizzard Recording, and I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. I I loved it. I am always, you know, I've never spoken to Ed until, you know, we've emailed and until we, we chat on the phone. I've, we've never even had a conversation. We, we spoke for about two minutes before I began recording, and then we're straight into it. And I'm always amazed by how easy people in the music industry are to speak to you know they're they're all such lovely people and the fact that he's so willing to give out all of the knowledge (laughs) that he has um is just incredible you know we're so lucky to be able to learn from these people and have podcasts you know I'm, i'm not this isn't blowing the trumpet of the podcast but it's just so amazing that that this facility exists that we can learn you know people worldwide listening to this can learn from the experience of someone like Ed uh, and I think that that's incredible and it um, fills me <laughs> fills me with joy that that is a thing that's possible um, so yeah huge thank you to Ed for, for giving us his time um, okay so that just leaves me to say please don't forget you can contact me through my website which is allyouneedisdrums.com there's a contact form on there my email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums Um on the website, there is a shop if you'd like to support the podcast by buying one of the lovely enamel mugs that we have for sale. We have for sale, like it's uh, some huge team. I have for sale. It's me. <laughs> it's just Joe. Um, you can also see my isolated drum stems on there, and you can also get in contact about sessions if that kind of thing interests you. Um, so the website, again, is allyouneedisdrums.com. Uh, so yes, thank you for listening. A uh, huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallett for the artwork, and to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading and doing all of the legwork for the podcast. I appreciate all of you, and I appreciate you for listening. So thank you, and I will be back next week. Goodbye! Goodbye!